top sales leaders in B2B who share their story, know-how, and experiences in sales. My name's Paige, and today our host, Joseph Fung, is speaking with Mark A. Smith, VP of Sales at Wompley. Wompley software is making it easy for small businesses to boost their online reputations, engage their customers, and monitor the health of their businesses with data and technology. In this episode, Mark shares his insights on scaling sales teams and building trust between managers and reps. Let's get started. So thanks again. Really appreciate you spending the time with us, Mark, uh, to kind of get things started. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself, you know, your history. What are you up to? Who, who is Mark Smith? I grew up in Southern California, the son of a uh, stay-at-home mom and an attorney who ran his own very small practice. I always planned on being an attorney, and I went to BYU to, uh, planning on studying that. Turns out I, I don't like school that much, and if you want to be a lawyer, you have to go to school. So uh, sales it was. Right after BYU, I, I got the dream job as an outside pharmaceutical rep. I still don't know how I got it. I certainly was unqualified. I flat out hated it, but I made it work for about three years until I finally decided that I should stop doing a job that, uh, that I had to stress out about every single day. So at that point, I was a little scared. I mean, what do you do when you're not going to be an attorney and then you don't like the, the greatest sales job in the world? After a few months of struggling a bit, um, it clicked, and I've really spent about 90% of my career since then in inside sales, home security, software, solar, uh, but my bread and butter has always been inside sales. You've had such a, a wide career. I mean, like you said, pharmaceuticals to, to security to, to small businesses across geographies. As you think about those, are there any you know common trends or patterns that, that jump out to you across that, that huge variety? You hear a lot of statements in sales that they sound really good, but they, they, in reality, they make no sense, such as a lead is a lead or a sale is a sale. And it, it's just not true. And I think what has stuck out to me over the last 15 years is that everybody thinks that inside sales is easy. And the ones that take it very seriously thrive. And the ones that don't have a very, very difficult time. And so, you know, some of the best times in my careers have, have been when I work with a company that really gets it and it's, you know, you can make an impact very quickly and you can rapidly scale. Uh, and then some other rewarding times are when you, when you can go into a company and help them see that it's not as easy as they thought, but if they put certain things in place, they could be very successful. You also have the, uh, you know, the advantage of having worked in both the sales and the marketing side of things. And, mm-hmm. and as being on both sides, you know, change the way you run your, your sales organizations. Spending some time on the marketing side has helped me to see where they're coming from. I wouldn't in any way claim to be an expert in marketing, but I definitely have seen their side of the fence. And I actually don't think it's that difficult to meld sales and marketing together um, and have everyone get along really well. I think what a lot of companies miss is an alignment at the very beginning, that it's very rigid uh, very exhaustive around the forecast where sales and marketing can get together, be very honest about the approaches, challenge each other, and then sign up for a, a credible forecast. When that happens, it's actually not that difficult to work between the two. 
the struggle that people have is a lot of times the groups have not communicated with each other and they make wild assumptions either based on ignorance or they're based on preserving their own territory or you know their own financial benefit and there's a lot of times you can go in and you can see almost immediately that the forecast upon which they're working is rubbish it makes absolutely no sense at all on one side or the other or on both sides uh, and i've seen this by the way in really great companies you know you know i've spent time helping companies that are 99% outside sales and they again believe well we should just start inside sales. It's probably really easy to do. If you can sell it door to door, you can sell it over the phone. And let's do this amount of business the first year. And everyone says sure, because they don't want to tell the CEO that they can't. And then you walk in and you look and it takes all of, you know, two minutes to eyeball a spreadsheet and realize that it's based on, you know, pretty unfounded assumptions. When it goes well, though, is you can sit down with them and you can really dig in and challenge those assumptions. And then once everybody signs up for it, the trick is to act like an adult and hold yourself accountable and, and hold others accountable. You know, at, at Wampley, in, in our first quarter, we had a few misses between sales and marketing, but it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, we had aggressively pursued a rigorous forecast, and the things that I missed on had no problem with marketing getting on my case and things they missed on. They had no problem with me getting on their case. And and things got fixed fixed literally within days and, and life goes on. But it's when you have a total separation that causes a lot of the bickering between the two. And sometimes that's organizational. Sometimes that's based on financial incentives. Sometimes it's based on politics. But if you can't get those things working together, it's just not going to work out. Are there any obvious pitfalls or, or any recommendations that, that you share with companies that are trying to make that transition you know, from being predominantly outside to an inside sales? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's, it's a simple question, but it's such an important question because most of the time they, they really don't have a solid plan on how they're going to do it. Again, the assumption is our product's good. You can sell it to a business in their business. You can sell it in someone's home. Certainly we, we can sell it over the phone. And it's not that that's necessarily wrong, but there are, in my opinion, there's four elements that determine whether or not you can have a successful inside sales team. There's obvious things everyone needs to have, such as talent, right? And proper leadership. But the things that are very specific to inside sales, in my opinion, is, is first, you have to have a viable lead source or a viable way of contacting your prospects. And I know that sounds very simple, but it isn't as simple as people often think. For instance, we have a product at Wampley that is unbelievably valuable to our uh, to our merchants. Uh, it's priced probably 25% of our competitors. If we get somebody on the phone to do a demo, we close it more than 60% of the time. But if right now you gave me a million dollars and told me to go spend it on paid search, I could probably spend 10,000 of that because people are not searching for that. So companies will assume, well, I've got a great product and there's a huge TAM out there and I can just make sales. Well, it might not be true if you don't have a viable way of bringing in paid leads or warm leads, or on the other hand, if there isn't a way for you to um, contact those uh, those potential customers. Um, so for, for example, in the consumer space, if you want to follow the law in the United States, 
and you don't have a warm lead source, you're effectively blocking out about 85% of your potential market because of the do not call list. And if you don't pay attention to those things, your forecast is going to be very, very wrong. Um, the second thing is, is they need the ability to absorb fixed costs. So take, for instance, the home security space or the solar space, the Vivint Solars or the Solar Cities or the Sunruns. These are awesome companies, and they've built tremendous outside sales. Well, they also pay commission only, and they need very little fixed uh, overhead to make the first sale. It's not really the case with inside sales. You have to have some office space. You have to buy software. You have to purchase leads that don't yield a return immediately. You generally have hourly wages. You have benefits. You have you know, FICA and Medicare. And these things add up very quickly before you see a return. And so you know, whether it's a publicly traded company that wants to quickly do inside sales and tell their shareholders that uh, it's profitable immediately, or whether, as has been the case many times in my career, I get a phone call from a, a rich local doctor or real estate investor who wants to start a inside sales software company, I, I typically can sit them down and show them that, you know, depending on what they're selling, they, they may need to fund me with half a million dollars before they see a, a single sale. And it obviously freaks them out a little bit. They're also, and this is again obvious, but people forget it many times, is there needs to be a margin to the product. So it may be that when you sell something direct, you have this massive margin. But when you add in the fixed costs, or especially the lead costs, if you're purchasing warm leads, that margin can disappear very quickly. And so you have to, whether or not your product can sell, there still has to be enough margin in the product to make it work. And that's where a lot of software companies, for instance, struggle is the cost of acquiring a demo is so high that even if they have a very high demo to conversion rate, unless they have a strong margin or unless the LTV has a really long tail, they're going to struggle unless they find you know a strategic partner. And then the last one is there needs to be a process to maximize the inside sale. So again, going back to something such as a consumer good, like a, a home security system or a, maybe it's solar panels. When you sell something outside, you can generally get it installed very quickly. But when you sell something over the phone, there is going to be a degradation in your sales funnel between the yes and the time that it gets installed, unless you are supporting that sale with the same process in terms of the time from yes to install, or with a better process that even if you can't have the same time to install, it keeps them warm and nurtured and engaged so they don't fall out in the meantime. And so if you have those things, I, I genuinely think you could be very successful doing sales over the phone. But if you're missing one of those things and you don't really acknowledge it, there's a chance you're going to dump a ton of money into something and get very little yield. Um, you know, when you think about uh, uh, sales reps in an outbound, you know, an outside sales, I mean, very often they're building their own prospects. Um, on the inside sales, you know, there's that balance between what marketing does and what they do. Um, how do you how do you see inside sales reps uh, best developing their own leads? There are going to be times where a rep really just doesn't have the ability to do so. You know, where social selling doesn't make sense, or they just don't have a wide enough reach in their own life to make that happen. And, and they do need to rely 
upon marketing to deliver. It doesn't always have to be a warm lead. Um, but in some industries, it's so heavily regulated that even a cold lead that's provided has to be you know, really thoroughly vetted out. But for a rep to really increase their income off of their own efforts, it really comes down to learning how to, to get a referral. And we all know that a referral or a self-generated lead is going to be the highest converting, the highest value. But it is really challenging for reps, even the top reps, to get those referrals and you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in teaching people how to do it. We've we've done quite well in some industries and others we struggle with. For instance, in you know B2C, it's not that hard to get a referral because you're asking for neighbors, friends, family. But if you're speaking to a small business, these are really busy people. And they might not actually know any other people that run small businesses. You know, if you look in your in your phone book right now on your iPhone, you might only have 10% of your contacts touch a small business. So it can be really difficult to get that self-generated lead, but it is critically important. Uh, we always say in the B2C world that for every sale you make, you need to add about 15% as a referral factor. It's a little bit less in the B2B world, especially with a short sales cycle, but it's it's really important if you want to maximize the yield on your, on your leads. Yeah, we, we always hear that a hard part of sharing online is is being really authentic. And when when we take a look at your comments and the stuff you share on LinkedIn, it always comes from uh, such a, a genuine place and a place on the core. Did did using LinkedIn that way you know, come naturally to you? Did you did you expect your reach and your, your audience would be so large? No, I mean I, I think you could call it natural, but I think it's more accurate to call it a fluke. I'm not a social person. The assumption is that a VP of sales is very outgoing and extroverted and that's just not the case for me. I, I really like being alone or just with my family or small group of friends. And I'm, I'm not exactly a social butterfly. Really what happened is about a year ago, I had an experience purchasing some software that really frustrated me. And so I, I made a comment on LinkedIn at the time I had, I don't know, 300 connections and zero followers. And I had never posted anything. Frankly, I didn't know what people even post on LinkedIn. And it was, it was crazy because that post, you know, got nearly 2 million hits and things sort of started to take off from there. But I've never intended to make sales from LinkedIn. I still, still haven't. I've, I've made sales for other people where if I make a comment about the quality of their product, one of their sales rep will, will call me and say, oh my gosh, we just did $150,000 of revenue off of that comment. But... <laughs> I mean, honestly, and I posted about this recently, people ask me all the time what the strategy is. There isn't a strategy. I don't think that much of myself. Basically, when I have a thought that I want to put down on paper and that I think others could benefit from and, and something that I think is credible, like I'm not going to speak to something I don't know about, then I'll post it. And if people like it, that's really great. And if they don't, that's okay. Um, you know, I've had posts that have... I'd say the lowest ones, maybe 250,000 views, but I've had posts that, you know, I had one that had 27 million hits. Um, but there isn't a strategy between the two. It's just try to help people out and um, learn from others. And, you know, if good stuff comes from that, then that's really great. But, uh, you know, even with this is the first podcast that I've agreed to be on. I've probably been invited on 30. It's just not something I'm super comfortable with. And there is no strategy for me to, you know, become a speaker or 
make a ton of sales. And, you know, if I ever run out of things to say, then I suppose I'll disappoint a lot of people. But in the meantime, once a week, you, you get to get bugged by me on LinkedIn. <laughs> How would you compare coming into help a company in that type of coaching and consultancy role versus being in there longer term and, and kind of running it yourself? Well, I actually enjoy being an employee. I don't love being a consultant. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a really bad one. Um, <laughs> you know, I've gone into companies and they're doing great. Like there's, they don't, they don't need me, me for six months. What they need is some really you know, good, tough conversations over three or four days, some follow up a week or two later and help them put in processes that maximize the good that they're already doing. I don't really get involved in leadership changes. I, I certainly can make recommendations. There have been times where I've had to let a CEO or a you know head of sales know that I think they're struggling with a few of their leaders that you know maybe are lacking in you know buy into the company's vision. But typically, my focus is to go in and determine what they're doing well, help them put in some pretty basic sales one hundred and one processes, and help them to to maximize things, and then. You know, the question you had asked earlier was about how you establish the trust between, you know, leadership and sales in such a short period of time. There's there's nothing that I'm going to do where I can go in and, you know, have a Dr. Phil session where I get everyone in a room and we, we do a get to know you game and everyone starts trusting each other. That's, you know, that's to me kind of some like cultural nonsense. Trust is is not built on you know, doing ropes courses together. It's not built on, you know, having a beer together. It's built on people setting expectations and delivering. And then when they're wrong, accepting that they're wrong and fixing it. So when you go in and you see what somebody has that's going well, you really just put in processes that help both sides be winners. So you enable the individual contributing uh, contributors or the, the mid-level managers to be very successful. You help them with little tips and tricks to where all of a sudden their sales reps see them as a real expert in the field. Um, but trust isn't built over 30 days. It's built over many months of good decisions and then owning up to bad decisions. And when you put the right processes in place, those things will reveal themselves. And then you just have to hope that they have good character because in the end, leadership is just revealing character. Nobody can hide being a bad leader. You have to have um, certain character traits that help to bring out those traits in other people. And no matter how good a consultant is or how good a process or product, trust will never be built between you know a bad leader and, a, and any employee. Uh, in one of your, your recent posts, you talked about five promises you make to reps. And, and one of those promises was that you know, I'm never going to ask you to, to trust me. Uh, those promises were, were really impactful and really profound. Uh, are those unique to your time at Walkley, or, or where did those come from and then thinking behind them? They've developed over time, and it's really through my own life experiences. When I got my first management job, I'm still grateful that I got it because I was really unqualified, and I was, I was pretty bad at it. And uh, God bless the guy who hired me because he was also a bad manager, and he didn't realize that I was so bad, and so it gave me time to, to learn but, you know, over time, you just sort of learn things. You start to feel really disconnected or resentful with people that demand things of you, but, but don't give you anything in return. You know, one of my favorite quotes, I think it's by Thoreau, who talks about, you know, the more he talked of his honor, the quicker we, we counted our spoons. And that was, that's always been the case in my life, which is 
when somebody says, you know, I can be trusted, you can trust me, it's, it's generally the person who, who can't be. And so what I've figured out over time is that nobody trusts me because I, because I tell them to. I mean, some people I suppose do. But the ones you want to win over, they just need to see your actions. And, and so I figured I might as well treat others as, you know, how I want to be treated. Um, you know, to give you an example, uh, Toby, our CEO, um, you know, he, he can, he can drive us pretty hard. Um, we're very demanding of each other, but I can call him at three o'clock in the morning and he will, whether or not he's asleep or not, he'll answer the phone as if he's wide awake and he will engage with me and he will deliver on his promises every single time. And so, you know, whether you're going through a tough month or getting ready for board meetings or whatever it may be, when you have somebody like that who always keeps their promises, you can go through, through some pretty tough times and still have a ton of trust and really enjoy working with them. And, and that's what I try to be with my people. Um, if you had to, to pick up kind of a single piece of advice for somebody who's making that move you know, into a management role to grow their own team, what's the, the one thing you'd leave them with? The first thing I would say is just be patient. You're going to want to get in there and when times are good, you're going to want to throw out Winston Churchill quotes. And when times are bad, you're going to want to fire people and yell at them. And it's what we all think we need to do. But generally what you need to do is slow down, kind of take things in. You know, when you take your first management position, you should not be agreeing to that promotion or that hire unless they have committed to you, you know, a good 30 days for you to really observe and learn. I, I would say that you, you should not attempt to take over the world in the first week. You, you need to learn the strengths of your people and you need to embolden them and let them know that you're not coming in to be better than them. You're, you're coming in to augment the good things that they do and then potentially help with the things that they struggle with. If I was going to give uh, general career advice, I actually would, would borrow this from a, a guy named Noah Goldman. And I, I learned this just a few months ago. And some advice he gave, and I hope I state it properly, is in your career, if you want to be tremendously successful and, and have job security forever, everybody should should seek to be known as an expert in one thing. So, you know, one of the things that's helped my career is, is when some CEO says, we really need to start an inside sales group or we need to grow our inside sales group. I've been fortunate that I've got a lot of colleagues and connections that say, you need to talk to Mark Smith. He is the expert in growing or building a sales or inside sales organization. And that has given me tremendous security and a lot of great opportunities. And I think that's the case, whether you're in sales or management, is be known as somebody who is legitimately an expert in one particular thing, and you'll have value forever. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch and keeping the conversation going. Sounds great. And thanks to you guys for reaching out. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Sales Leader Spotlight. If you'd like to hear more, check out www.kite.ai slash podcast or drop us a line at info at kite.ai. Join us next week where we chat with Kelly Lampkin, Corporate Account Executive at NetSuite, where we will discuss how to master the art of social selling. Thank you.